for epilepsy, there is hope. Hey podcast listeners, Tori Robinson here for Epilepsy Sparks Insights, a podcast about epilepsy, epilepsy research, common comorbidities and all of the fascinating science behind it. Whether you have epilepsy, are a family member, a neurologist, neuropsychiatrist, therapist, neurophysiologist, scientist or researcher, Epilepsy Sparks Insights is designed to help you learn more about epilepsy from the other side of the table. I'm a person with epilepsy and some missing brain tissue. I hope to help bridge the unnecessary gap between patients, the public and the aforementioned. Because epilepsy research and science are cool. Empowerment is, is you know, is, is incredibly important and, and I, you know, I do support things like the, you know, the Epsomon apps and I support things like the SUDEP checklist. These things are helpful. I mean, pilots need to go through a checklist before they fly us. So we shouldn't be too embarrassed to need a checklist to go through to remind ourselves of all the things that are supposed to be asked. You know when you can feel the warmth of somebody even through the screen? Well, that's what I felt when talking to Mike Kerr for this week's podcast. Professor Mike Kerr is a globally recognised, award-winning neuropsychiatrist based in Cardiff in Wales, who specialises in improving the lives of people who live with epilepsy, learning difficulties and mental health issues, which often all come in together. Mike talks about his extensive experience and the value of caring for and improving the lives of his patients. Stay tuned to learn more, and if you haven't already, and if you want to, do subscribe to the channel. Together, let us improve outreach, epilepsy awareness, understanding, and research. So hi there, Mike. Thank you for joining us. Could you please tell everybody a bit about yourself? Well, Tori, thank you very much for inviting me on to this, uh, to this famous uh, programme of yours, of Epilepsy <laughs> Sparks. Um, well, I'm Mike Kerr. I'm a, what's called Professor Emeritus, which means I'm a, a re- semi-retired professor from Cardiff University uh, and also Swansea University in Wales. And... Uh, I uh, specialise in epilepsy uh, and have done for a long, many years, uh, especially people with uh, learning disability in epilepsy and people, uh, issues around people who have uh, uh, psychological distress and epilepsy. So, um, you know, over, over the years of my career, I've, I've mainly focused on clinical, a combination of clinical work. So I've had tens of thousands of uh, consultations with families and people with disability and epilepsy, and also, you know, a lot of research around understanding epilepsy, understanding the mental health in epilepsy, and also around the healthcare for people with learning disabilities. When you say learning disabilities, how do you measure a learning disability or intellectual disability? Okay, well, it's a combination of things, but it it's changes all the time. And um, But essentially, it's, it's a combination really about adaptive functioning, how the person can cope with uh, with living, uh, associated with uh, with IQ scores, which are very, very rarely used these days as a measure. We hope not to have to reach doing actual IQ scores. So it's often about a person's learning ability, their adaptive ability to care for themselves and their risk. Uh, in individual services, the actual measurement may become you know, quite a moot point because it may be a very fine borderline that you get support for learning disability rather than not support. and. I have somewhat like the diagnosis of autism or something. So, um, so it can be very difficult. But in 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 my particular world, I I will probably not get too worried about the measurement of and diagnosis. If I see someone, I'll see them. Um, but of course, the person's abilities and their understanding and their capacity to understand is 
you know, is central to uh, to care delivery. And um, tell us what got you into this work, because I do know for a fact, and we've spoken about this before, and statistics say say it all that we need more people in a profession such as yours. So, what enticed you into this? Okay, um, well, it's probably quite a long story, but very quickly, I. Uh, I trained in Bristol University and then I went up to York to train as a general practitioner and I was sure I would be a general practitioner. Um, but uh, during that training, I worked with a fantastic psychiatrist called Dr. Susan Shaw, who uh, showed me that psychiatry could be you know, more clear than people perhaps consider it to be and you could make sensible, clear decisions in psychiatry and it was doable, uh, and but also quite medical and I've always liked the medical side of things. So. I came down to Cardiff to follow a particular person I wanted to train with. And uh, when I worked, I worked for somebody who worked in learning disability, a, a chap called Professor Fraser, who was uh, fantastic. And he uh, collected a collection of young uh, people around him who were all following him and committed to work for people with disability and close down institutions and try and help people with uh, intellectual disability. So I carried on in that and then... I suddenly realised that everybody, a lot of people had epilepsy. And, I, and because I trained as a GP, uh, I knew that I knew absolutely nothing about epilepsy. And it worried me a lot that I had to actually manage people not knowing anything about them. So I went to work with a, the professor of, uh, of epilepsy, professor Alan, the late uh, Professor Alan Richards in Cardiff. And I worked doing clinics with him and being taught by him for the rest of my training. So that made me an epilepsy doctor. Um, just by chance. So uh, I, don't, I don't think there was any um, any moment when I became someone interested in this. I think I had a general interest in inequalities, in interesting people who were more complicated and a bit more fascinating because they were complicated and, you know, lived with other people and had complex lives around them. So that maybe enticed me to, the, to, to into this. And then epilepsy just caught me, as I think it catches quite a lot of people because they're the discussions and the, uh, the the both the medicine and the psychiatry uh, and the social side of it are all super complicated and I think you can if you get it right help people it's like uh you the word complicated it just makes me think like of a load of like spaghetti and it's all intertwined like almost like a messy brain isn't it and it's like how you can't just address one thing if a person has learning disabilities though as you're saying so likely to have epilepsy or other issues you kind of got to look at all sides of the string of the pasta well right you, um yeah i'm not sure how far i can follow this through i'm not to professor van tam but i, mean, I would say that <laughs> you gotta be careful because if you don't if you don't watch it you'll never eat the pasta so you actually have to start addressing bits of it and see how it unravels Mm. And that's something which, you know, my role is about trying to communicate which bits we should start having a go at. Because some of those things are, are you know, are about the person and their, their lives and their personality, which a doctor can't alter in the clinic. And you have to be very realistic about. But I can certainly look at diagnosis and I can certainly look at communication and I can certainly look at treating epilepsy and supporting risk and those sorts of things. Um a problem with such complicated situations is that there's a chance for um, for paralysis of treatment. And I think that does happen quite often, that people get told there's nothing more you can do, it's too complicated. When I generally don't think I've met anybody where there isn't at least something to discuss, no matter how many years they've had epilepsy for and how many, because there's always something in people's lives and epilepsy always changes. Do you know what? I really like that last piece you just said, epilepsy always changes. People tend to think, and many clinicians too, I think, that you're diagnosed with epilepsy, say you're like, I don't know, 10, 20 years old. It's going to be the same forever. 
and your needs um, as a result of the epilepsy or comorbidities will never change, but that is not the case. No, it's not. And also, of course, knowledge has changed. So when you offer long-term support, um, you know, you, we weren't perhaps advising about mm. bone health and enzyme inhibitors in... 1995, and we should have been, but I worked for a professor of pharmacology and, and it wasn't an issue then, and we weren't necessarily talking about SUDEP, only just thinking about it. We weren't talking about psychiatric comorbidity in the same way. It was, we were getting out of an era where there was there was too much association between epilepsy and psychiatry, and it was people not of that course, long ago had been yeah. in institutions because of it. So, you know, yeah. we were moving into another world and that had to be redefined, and we had to make sure that this, we weren't recreating that concept. Uh, and putting it in a way that was, you know, more appropriate for the person. So things have changed all the time. And, you know, one of the things I've been lucky enough is to, you know, those families I've looked after for, you know, I look back on the notes and it's 1991 or 1992 when I first saw them. And, and you see the, you know, the, it isn't just that, you know, the families, people, we all get older and the parents get older and the person gets older and we and we change. So, um, you know, you, you're always happy to be thinking about something new occurring and a new angle and uh, looking at someone differently when you see them. I think that's really important. Um, status quo, you don't want to just maintain status quo if you can unless it's very, very good. What would you um, say, before I call, we were, we were answering a little bit about SUDEP, how important would you say that is to bring up and explain to families? Everybody needs SUDEP explained, uh, in my opinion, right from first presentation of seizure so theoretically before diagnosis uh, because of risk um, I, I don't think that's a contentious statement I think you know we need to talk about risk and open it and um, uh, it, it's absolutely crucial because I think we've looked at it for a long time as we see from the experience of families who have been and, and partners who've been mm. sadly lost mm. their loved ones uh, that the, the pain of feeling that, it, that the risk wasn't communicated was you know, was appalling, and it and the pain of feeling that you could have mitigated against that risk and you didn't because you didn't know about it was even more appalling. Um, so, of course, we have to do it for that reason. But I think it's much more than that. It's an honest communication with people about trying to explain why we do things. So, you know, we it understandably people think you you know giving these quite powerful drugs. Um, you know, is a big thing to do, which it is. And sometimes I think we forget to tell people why we're getting them. <laughs> and this is one of the reasons, is, you know, is to stop the seizures, and the seizures are dangerous uh, in, on a, in a range of ways. So, you know, I think that's, you know, that communication of why we just do our simple management is, is really important. You don't want to, you know, make it, um, you know, overwhelmingly, you know, an oppressive message, because um, it can be a positive message. A lot of people will... will will reduce their pseudo risk. But people need to be aware of it, need to be aware that when it changes, or see epilepsy changes, you may need to re- revisit why you're doing things to make to reduce the risk. So it's, I think it's extremely important. I mean, it's got to be part of a package and it's got to be done in a sensitive way and, um, you know, and personalised, uh, which is very important. And probably not just by somebody like me in a clinic, but in my situation, by my team, people I work with in the community team who, you know, will have different forms of contact with people and different environments in which to talk and and also to make sure I think the message you know is is understood there's a lot there's a lot of messaging uh, for people with a very big diagnosis and you could quite easily I think you know miss stuff out and you could quite easily not read leaflets so I think um, it's um, important to keep on going and keep on talking about it
Yeah, I think especially as it's one of those things so many of us, if not the majority, don't really want to know about. It's, well, you want to know what your risk is, but it's not like you want to hear this, this thing which can um, initially be rather frightening. So I agree with what you're saying, like tell the person or the family pretty much straight away so that it can start to sink in. And, and then also people can't say that they haven't been told about it and how to minimise the risk. Well, also, so you can start mitigating against your risk, not just of pseudo, but of epilepsy-related deaths. Such as well, pneumonia. indeed. Um, and it's no point waiting, taking the lottery of a few more events before you communicate that message. Yeah. So it is very important. And if it has an effect on people, then we should try and support them with that effect. Exactly, because that's another thing to do with epilepsy and learning disabilities, isn't it? It's not just one or two things. And actually, I was, I, think, I was thinking along the lines of communication. How do you cope, for instance, not cope, or how do you manage a situation when, say, a patient may be nonverbal or there may be, say, language issues of other types? Um, how, yeah, how do you manage that? Well, I think that's, you know, that's obviously very common in, in epilepsy and learning disability, intellectual disability, because, you know, the severity of epilepsy associates with the severity of the of the intellectual uh, impact on the person. And um, so often we see a lot of people who are, you know, complexly comorbid with uh, epilepsy and lots of other conditions. Well, you know, I, I, there is absolutely no way that I'm any more able to do that communication than anybody else. So, but first of all, you need to know that. And obviously what you want to do is, you know, is make sure you are communicating at the maximum, supporting that person in the maximum way possible. So, you know, hopefully there'll be others around them, family members, carers, and then my person might have a communication book, might have a communication aid. So you have to talk about how, how to do this. The person is, is central, so you have to work with the person, but of course at some stage the person can't speak and doesn't understand the discussions. You will have to work for those who, who work with them. So it's a case of working out, uh, you know, and, you know, the... the, the the classical complaints, quite rightly, are about, you know, the person with disability who is actually able to hear and speak, not being talked to, and this the carer has spoken to, um, uh, and not including people. And we have to absolutely make sure we avoid that. I mean, it, it's a, it, it is a bit dependent on, on carers, you know, supporting and pointing out that, you know, this is the communication style and people should have, communi- you know, what, how does somebody communicate? So, um and sometimes, of course, it takes a lot of messages. But I don't think it's just people with learning disability who need a lot of messages. I need a lot of messages before I learn yes, something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not a unique thing to think that one in one visit you could take everything on board. Right, especially it can be pretty overwhelming, especially upon diagnosis, I think. Or, you know, it's a sense, well, rather sensitive topic if it affects, like, a lot of your life or the majority of your life, I guess, with many of your patients. And, the, and a lot of the, uh, a huge part of the lives, I think, of family and carers. As you get, as, you, as the word says, they're caring. They feel they want it to go well. They want the person to be. We all want that. You know, we all want the person to get well. We may have, you know, have to find a common ground about issues about trying treatments and um, risk, mm. and medication and those sorts of things or other interventions. But you know, we all want to try and get the same outcome. And the families, you know, the families have been. Well, they see me. They're they're eighteen. They've been under the care often of fantastic pediatricians, and 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 they've had to go through the. You know the the shock of the United Kingdom's approach to healthcare delivery, whereby you, as a child, you, your care is delivered a lot by paediatricians um, and less by your GP. And then, as soon as you become an adult, your GP is absolutely central, but hasn't been necessarily always involved in the discussion around the epilepsy. 
So it is, and then suddenly you you have to go to you know every, like the rest of us do every single different specialty, your chest physician, your heart physician, your heart physician to get things organised. It can be so stressful for the patient thinking, okay, I've got to manage this, 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 and this, and I think that creates extra stress for you guys because, say for instance, say. Um, what I've experienced as an adult, and I, lots of other people I know, um, affected by epilepsy and psychiatric comorbidities, well, they might have a wonderful neurologist or epileptologist who knows a fair bit about the psych issues, but you also need to, assuming that you are able to and have access to a uh, neuropsychiatrist like yourself, you know, that things can be so split up and it's quite can be quite stressful, I think, for families and patients if, if they do all this themselves. Well, I think it's very, very stressful because the people aren't always available, of course, and um, the timescales are enormous and the, you know, the acute medical care um, will will be in different environments quite often. You go to different wards, whereas before you went to a paediatric ward and it's obviously extremely stressful, but it doesn't mean it's bad. You know, growing up is fantastic for the person with disability and we see people, you know, change change amazingly when they leave their schooling and things. So it isn't bad. It's just a case of finding the way to make it to support it um, yeah it's a good thing to grow up you know but it is <laughs> it is it is you know a very challenging thing because it is definitely challenging you form you know very very strong relationships with professionals and then suddenly you just enter into a new world um, yeah. and that can't be easy for anybody do you think sometimes it can be almost more stressful for mum and dad or the carer when they've kind of maybe sometimes coddled the person that they love or really wanted to protect them and then this change well I'll, I, you know I mean I, I'll have to I'll put my, one of my cards on the table is that I'm of course people can be over protective but as a gen I really think people are usually appropriately protective um, it's just that there's a transition time to support people moving on to something because often things have happened because there wasn't a support there so families have had to do what from the outside looks like excessive support possibly but was really a reaction to there being not the appropriate help for them around so it is hard for the families because it's because they're the ones you know in very frequently the families will be the ones who who are expressing the concerns and are describing the epilepsy you know you know waiting for a response from the clinician um and and, they, and if it isn't what they're used to it's going to be very stressful isn't it so tell us something positive about your job and what's made you stick it out for a fair while. <laughs> Although maybe kind of, like you said before, one day a week um, practice. Although, you, by the way, everybody, um, Mike's got a million roles, so look in the text below. It's absolutely nuts. But yeah, sorry, what keeps you going, Mike? It, it is, you know, a, a fantastic, if you like, almost honour to be able to sort of be part of people's lives. You know, and you are, and you're trying to support. Just not that I think I, you know, that remotely that you know, what I do always supports people, but you know, you are allowed into people's lives, and and you know that does it comes with a massive responsibility, and it is fascinating. I work with, you know, I learn all the time from the families. I mean, I'm changing. I'm hopefully trying to change what I do a lot from the families. It isn't always that unless I change better, I guess, but I do try and change. And you know, you learn so much from experience. Medicine's about experience. You know, it's learning and knowledge, and then what you experience and pattern recognition and these sorts of things. So. Um, you know, it's great to have the consultation. The people with disability themselves are, are fantastic, you know, and and because of that, you know, around them, there's often fantastic support workers. And for me in particular, the community team I work with, you know, is, is great. And, you know, they've all got, you know, incredibly important roles and they, you know, they, they all do what they do far better than, than I could do what they do. Um, and how we sort of get that together and work it out for the person is 
is wonderful. I think I also I also very much like working with you know the charities I have worked with in the past and I currently work with. So for a long time I've been with um, with Sudep Action, and you know that has changed. Meeting families has just completely changed the way I look at people. I think you know so. Um, I think it's that keeping you going. Otherwise, you know, I'll, I'll just uh, stagnate. So, there's a lot of positivity. I mean, you, you meet great, but you, 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 you interview a lot of great people. So, you, you know, you meet a lot of great people who, you know, are, are more than admirable. And being lucky enough to meet those sort of people, I think, is, is good for you. So. Oh, totally. And it's you guys that keep me going personally and... And I've just and I've heard from many patients who listen to the interviews that they are just delighted to hear from the mouth of the experts, well, experts from the other side of the table. But there is, I think sometimes we struggle that if you go and see your, whether it's your GP, your neurologist, your neuropsychiatrist, whatever, if you're lucky, you've got 10, 15 minutes. If you're lucky, lucky, right? And you don't so often, um, generalising, get to understand a bit about the the personality of the clinician and so when they hear about you guys or hear from you online like this through podcasts or youtube it's really lovely and heartwarming and i think it enables them to understand a bit more about why you might be rushed (laughs) and that you're doing Mm -hmm. a lot of stuff behind the scenes as well um many of and this certainly applied to myself in the past probably still does to be honest to, to a degree is that you don't realize what you guys are doing behind the scenes all the paperwork all the training that you never stops in your career ever you're constantly learning i agree with you i think a very good example is the fact that you know good practice is to ask the same questions every time you meet someone yeah but it looks from the other side of the table or the room like the person has forgotten what they asked last time, and like the doctor, and why is he asking all these same questions? But it's actually good practice to make sure you're right, and to make sure the story hasn't changed about the seizures and things, or not every single time, but quite frequently. So you often find this, I think, in families coming out of transition again, where you know they've, they've told their story lots of times, it's quite painful, uh, and you need to ask, or for, for instance, I might have to revisit whether there were problems over the birth or in the first year of life and now I need to do that because I need to try and diagnose the type of epilepsy because it's really important for treatment but it's really painful and you want to make sure you've communicated why you do things the way you do so there are there are two sides to this communication and, and I mean there always will be and time and services have a big effect and I think it's personally I think this is a particular you know challenge from my pure neurology colleagues they do tend to have Far worse clinics. Psychiatrists don't should have tend to have slightly more time. I think um, it's a generalisation, but I think it's probably relatively true. And neurologists tend to be unbelievably busy, and um, so it's very very hard to take on board. No one can twenty minutes can cope with that. So you have to have lots of different twenty minutes. And <laughs> they can happen. They can happen quite close together and not two years apart, unless you're going to take you a long time to get. What helps? you as a clinician in terms of okay so my idea that i've said multiple times before is that i what i find helps me is to bring along notes to appointments so that when i forget things not if but when it's okay they're in front of me and it can be useful to share it with you guys as well um would you say that's a useful tool for both parties yes i think i think i mean i think whatever suits you to try and you know just to not forget what was on your shopping list. 
I think is quite a good idea. You know, I mean, we all know that we can forget what's on our shopping list. And, there, and it's, that consultation is that time to get across this message. So I suppose the notes can be efficient. But I, I mean, I personally think that it's, um, you know, it, you know, quite a lot of clinicians will start by saying, you know, for new consultation, you know, what are the key things you want to discuss? So you've, you know, you've made sure that you've actually addressed, you probably will have your own, you know, you will have your own agenda as a clinician about the things you want to discuss in that consultation, but just to make sure you, you're coming up to, to address the same issue. So I, I really support, I mean, families as much as possible. We, we use something called the Glasgow Epilepsy Outcome Scale. It's all been a bit difficult during COVID and communication and things, but this, you know, it's the patient-related outcome measure where there's about 40 questions about various elements of care uh, on epilepsy, which might be concerning you and, it, and it's a nice I think it's a nice aid memoir for people and quite often really what matters is what people write in the notes at the bottom about what the big concern is and things so the more you can do to to support that moment of communication and um, the vast majority of my patients if I ask them any questions will, will say no and I'll always say, well try and you know try and get somebody to write them down before next time but you know that's only natural I'd be the same if I have a consultation I'd probably have to write notes myself before I went to it it's not an easy environment, is it? And it's sort of, you know, you've been told quite a lot. So to remember your shopping list is not easy. Uh, you might just go back to old favourites rather than the one you really wanted to ask about. Mm. Especially, I think, things like SUDEP. Not many people want to actually talk about, but it is something to continue to bring up, I think. Yes. Yeah, well, all sorts of risks and, benefit, you know, all, mm. all, all risks. Um, in, in disability, you should have your risk assessment done every year, hopefully by your community nurse. Mm. Um, so that should have been discussed already, but it should be revisited again. And but it isn't just suited. You know, it might be um, you know women on valproic acid. It might be all sorts of things. And then you know, for every risk you raise and cause concerns, you may take away concerns people have about doing something which is totally, totally safe. Yeah. You know, because the person you know can go because they haven't got photosensitive epilepsy or whatever. You know, so you do right. take away a lot of. And a lot of people, when we talk about you know risk, we actually you know. We remove risk, we remove restrictions, or we put in, you know, you or you address that risk by change of medication or rescue medication or something, and that means the person's, you know, life can expand. So you, you can't do that unless you raise the conversation. So true. So, like, I, I, had, I spoke to somebody recently um, who doesn't have learning disabilities, but was scared about... Um, flying to the States because of the long distance. And I was like, well, bring that up with your neurologist. You know, maybe there's something you can take to kind of take you up a little bit, you know, have a good nap on the aircraft or, uh, as I, I, you know, I don't give advice or anything, but, you know, these are all things that are part of your life. And then like the, um, like you were saying, you know, 3% of people who are, <laughs> who experience very sensitive epilepsy, well, the rest of us are okay. And like, I stopped going to, to certain clubs, well, I shouldn't have caught anyway, gosh, I can't dance, but um, to these clubs because of flashing lights, but I was fine. I, but nobody told me I was fine, but I was also having baths. And, cause I didn't, but I didn't know that I shouldn't be having baths. You know, so there are things that I think will tick and cross and it empowers the family as well as the individual patient, if you can go through yeah, these and things. I mean, obviously, I think, you know, Empowerment is, is, you know, is is incredibly important, and and I, you know, I do support things like the, you know, the Epsomon apps, and I support mm -hmm. things like the SUDEP checklist because, you know, these things are helpful. I mean, pilots need to go through a checklist before they fly us, so we shouldn't be too embarrassed to need a checklist. 
to go through to remind ourselves of all the things that are supposed to be asked to do something properly. And we should try and empower our patients. And, you know, the simplest way is to make that communication in your clinic such that you can actually be told the things that the person's worrying about. Um, Because they could just be gnawing away and they may be not very relevant. Um, Or they may be answerable because it might be something completely different. You know, where it is challenging is, you know, in people who've got multiple illnesses, which a lot of people with intellectual disability do. And, you know, I think quite often, you know, one of the things I have to say is that no one can know the answer to that question, really, because, you know, to, to do it, you have to ask the person. The person isn't responding, can't respond with language. And so we have to take, you know, we have to look at all the options, all the, set up some hypotheses and work out what the safest hypothesis is to address. And so I, I suppose the, the more you do this job, the more, possibly the more you say you, you don't know. In some circumstances, you don't know, but you might know. And you might know what the most likely option is, and then which is the least dangerous and the least restrictive to that person. So, and that, that obviously isn't, you know, I think people would love their doctors to say they know that they know their answer, the answer um, and you do sometimes you know but not always and that's just because people are very very particularly when it comes to you know behavior these sorts of things you know which are often you know many things influence the behavior i was speaking to somebody regarding dravet and um the uh, for people who aren't aware that is a rare type of genetic epilepsy and uh they were talking about some kids who smear their feces on the wall and things like this, so their behavioural issues were a real, real challenge. And then, but I was like, but the rest of the public never hears about that, just generally speaking. I'd never, ever heard about that. And I thought, well, why should a family feel... I was led to believe that the family felt ashamed, that they could never talk about this poo um, scenario or challenge because it's poo. Um, do you come across things like that very often? Um, well, yes, I think a lot of people will have. I suppose probably I, you know, I wouldn't necessarily remark on that very much unless it was, um, you know, considered to be uh, an issue at the time. I'd hope the person was getting support from that from from our nursing or behavioural services or something like that. I mean, I think there's a, you know, a lot of this challenge. You know, various behaviours are very common in people, you know, with with intellectual learning disability because. Of all sorts of complicated reasons, of which, you know, people essentially believe it's communication and not being able to communicate in the way they want, but it's possibly a bit more complicated than that. So, you know, behaviour is the, is is the one of the big barriers to getting epilepsy care because behaviour is obviously a very fragile thing, and if a family is coping with something very complicated like that, they don't want that equilibrium to be disturbed. They're worried about our treatments making it worse, so. One of the main jobs is to try and support through making changes for epilepsy because, in my experience, it's not remotely always the case that the behaviour relates to epilepsy or its treatments. Um, it might relate to the causation of the disability or other things. And um, because of that, if you, if, you, if you go on the basis that you think a behaviour is caused by epilepsy or its treatment, you won't be changing epilep- the treatment very much and that will put the person's epilepsy will continue and you're stuck in that dead end which you don't want to be in I think where you can't have treatment options so it's complicated and you know obviously that's I think one of the things where being in somebody who's been trained in learning psychiatry can be a little bit helpful and you've got some concept of who should be out there to support you 
um, and recognizing that it you know it, it takes a village and you need to have a lot of people around you to who've got fantastic skills and you know and you in that 30 minutes can't remotely answer those questions but you can support as i say you know hypothesis testing and you know families going through that will be very, will be common it's it's going to it is happening and, I, and they will need obviously need support you know practical support and psychological support because you want to try and get psychological support and behavioral support in you know as young as the person can be to stop it becoming entrenched you know so so it's very 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 common to talk about a range of behaviors and and you know it's probably the the big challenge and not least because behaviors are quite that's quite a defined behavior but you know things like aggression agitation are quite hard to to quantify yeah yeah i suppose a lot depends upon how the behavior affects the people around the individual right it does i mean i mean obviously the patient is the is the patient you know so we have to do then that's obviously uh, and then that's why you have to become experienced at, at uh, describing the behaviour because you want to make sure that it's, you know, it's about what it's doing to the person. Because we, sh- if it's a care provision, we should be able to support those carers or have enough carers or enough well-trained carers to cope with any behaviour. And and that's when you come into sort of psychiatric drugs, which is, you know, not something I tend to get involved with in terms of I don't get involved in the treatment of of uh, behaviour with psychiatric drugs really. Um, Apart from when they make the epilepsy worse, oh, right. I mean, well, antipsychotics can certainly make the epilepsy worse, but huh. um, that's when you got psychiatric teams. So the, you would the, the general lens for the psychiatric team. So I work in a team, and I've got two fantastic colleagues who can monitor that element of it, and okay. I monitor the epilepsy bit. And we know when we need to talk to each other to try and work out what's going on. So you juggle the balls together, and that's another example, actually, of stuff that goes on behind the scenes that families rarely see: is that you guys are actually talking to each other. Uh, yeah, so we are, we certainly are. Um, it doesn't. I wouldn't say it always happens, but they should happen because, um, you know, you, it's a special skill is, is, is sorting out those medications and trying to get them right. And and it may not be the best use of my time to put my time into that. And when they can do that, and I can do more epilepsy or whatever. And that's that's the team, isn't it? And the nurses, you know, will be having a huge role in that as well. Would you say the future is looking? better or less bleak for, than it has done in the past for people um for the people that we've been talking about yeah i think we should be positive yes definitely i think there are there are there are remember it's only in 1990 i went to work in an institution and now you apart from there are you know there are small hospitals for people with behavior disorder and autism and stuff which are under increasing scrutiny to make sure they are delivering the proper quality of care Mm. but you know institutions are hopefully not existent or very very rarely existent Um, so we now know that we can cope with pretty much any sort of epilepsy in the community so epilepsy has not restricted people from living an integrated life other things might restrict like availability of appropriate housing and funding and that sort of thing but epilepsy shouldn't so and then on top of that I think the world of epilepsy looks at intellectual disability in a different na- way now. Personally, I don't think it was very high up the agenda when I first tried to shout about it. it well, it wasn't very high, certainly in adult care. Paediatrics has always seen so many people with disability that it's been the norm in, in paediatrics. But in adult care, it certainly hasn't been, partly because people were partly hidden away in hospitals. Um, so there's better inclusion. And then, and then the, the treatments are changing. 
you know, so there's the specific treatments, specific genetic conditions. There's an interest in people with these complex conditions, which will, you know, have a broader effect on everybody. The charities are fantastic and, you know, are doing great things and, you know, communication is different. So I think the future is positive. Um, unfortunately, you know, it's dragged down by, you know, regular scandals, I guess, where people, reviews come out of cases which have been clearly not what you'd want in terms of quality of care. So you can get, you know, I've always thought in Britain, you know, you can get the best world-class care you could ever imagine, but you've still got a chance of not quite getting that or worse. So the the big issue is is the working at the political side and the the quality side and the making sure you don't fall in between the gaps. Uh, and this population is always, you know, it's the least able to speak for itself by definition and and therefore does fall between the gaps and and can be given a raw deal but at least now we can communicate that and there's you know there's laws to protect it and we've moved on an awful lot so uh, i would be positive and there's and there are loads of great people and girls are great young people and you know the i would the the neurologists i deal with are you know incredibly positive about people with disability and the medical students I used to deal with were fantastic about people with disability. They would often come and do projects with us and things. So I think, you know, that side of it is fantastic. It's really positive. So we should be positive, um, but we should keep on fighting. Fighting for greater investment, more equal distribution of funds for who needs support. Knowledge and, um, you know, application of knowledge. People shouldn't yes. be allowed to meet people who don't know about the topic. They shouldn't. They should always be expect a standard. I mean, there's all you know to, to err as human, and people will err. But we should people should expect a standard and know they can get a standard. Someone should should be able to see a specialist if they've got a severe condition. That it wouldn't. Not, it's not. It's not imaginable in any other condition that you could have a severe lifelong chronic condition and maybe not be able to see a specialist um, somewhere because it doesn't have to be in your own area. And most families are more than prepared to drive for a long period of time to see people if they have yeah. to. Yeah, shouldn't need um, to, but yeah, exactly, it, it should to. be there. So, um, that's part of the battle, and that's what, you know, the charities, uh, Suidip Action, and, you know, Epilepsy Action, the rest of the charities, they, they work extremely hard for to, you know, to get some political say in this. But we're all, you know, obviously in the world of politics is more complicated and as I told you before we started I'm definitely not a politician um, but um, you know epilepsy is, a, is one of the more common conditions and certainly is funded and and supported below its weight in terms of what finance does um, uh, you know working in the psychiatric field we talked a little mentioned a little bit about the stigma in terms of you know people the connection between epilepsy and psychiatric conditions historically I don't think that's the case now I hope um, but I think that stigma maybe still, you know, pervades elsewhere in terms of epilepsy. Um, personally, I think it, if I, you know, it, it pervades in terms of sometimes people take a very simplistic approach to the knowledge you need to know to, to manage epilepsy. And, you know, I think it's a, it is a very complicated topic with an awful lot of knowledge about it. It doesn't mean you're special to do it, it's that there's an awful lot to learn. And... Some people sometimes, you know, I think sometimes it's simplified. 
Yeah, it's just a load of seizures, and if you can take drugs that stop those seizures, all done. Yeah, tick. and sometimes simple messages about the drugs that they're just all bad if you have more, which isn't remotely the case. Some people need more to get better, and some need less, and and suddenly, so the simplification. Um, I don't think you, I don't think you'd get it in some other difficult conditions. Um, but you know, the messages and the knowledge is communicated. You're doing it now. You know, the knowledge is communicated so much more than it was. Uh, so that's why I think I am genuinely pretty positive, which is unusual for me. So that's quite good. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. Honestly, Mike, this has been great. I've been waiting ages for you. So thank you so much. And everybody, if you want to learn more about Mike, there are links um, below this recording. Hi. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook or Instagram. And I'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts about today's show. Please subscribe to Epilepsy Sparks Insights on your podcast app so that you will never miss the weekly episode. I'm Tori Robinson. Thanks for listening.